This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The syndicate had its growing game down. Harvesting two to three pounds of finished flour per plant put trees warehouses on par with the largest marijuana grows in the state. Almost more corporate than some of the true businesses I've worked at that have been businesses for 20 years. Output only increased. Each time Tree subleased a warehouse space to a caregiver, the syndicate upped its plant count and pumped out more pot. But even as Tree expanded his network of growers, he had to get that surplus weed across state borders, a task as risky as it was profitable. Colorado's market was already oversaturated with legal grow houses and pot dispensaries on what felt like every street corner. The price of weed hovered around $1,800 per pound, but in Minnesota, it floated around $2,500 per pound. This is what economists call an arbitrage opportunity. Arbitrage is when you take advantage of the price discrepancies in separate markets for the same product. In this case, exporting weed from a legal market in one state and selling it in an illegal market in another at a steep markup. So long as the syndicate could get its product to Minnesota, it could ride that wave. But the syndicate wasn't exactly what you'd call consistent. In contrast to its airtight growing operations, complete with this whole manual. It was basically like an Excel spreadsheet. The syndicate's distribution efforts were all over the map. Its ragtag group of smugglers proved as unpredictable as they were colorful. Let's meet the crew. I would basically report to Nick. He's talking about Nick Cool, AKA Shifty Nick, your garden variety Minnesotan, in the sense that he had a green thumb and wore his beard like a gnome. He managed one of the syndicate's warehouses. 58th Street, they called it Colorado. So it was off of Colorado Boulevard. Shifty Nick was a middle manager, capable but questionable, in that you never quite knew where his allegiances lay. And then he would call Fat Guy up here. Fat Guy, real name Richard Riley, AKA Fat Cat, the syndicate's main drug dealer in the Twin Cities and a hustler. The guy could sell hundreds of pounds a month. Yeah, as quick as he got it, he sold it. In 2003, Fat Cat felt the squeeze when the fuzz intercepted one of his guys with 10 kilos of cocaine coming in hot from Mexico. Fresh out of jail, he made the syndicate his comeback act. Next up, Tom, Crazy Tom. Tom Dispinet. We mentioned him in episode two, a shadowy marijuana magician who stacked weed in his basement like a doomsday prepper stack supplies. Tall, skinny, Kind of goofy looking guy, real out there personality-wise. Then you had Kyler Gerbich, referred as by some as Garbage Breath. Whatever girl must have probably had a yeast infection, he just wanted to spread it to the rest of us. It's gross. Garbage Breath also managed a warehouse, and he thought of himself as something of a ladies' man. But we're not done, because... Money was exchanged, and, and then money would go to the Asian. The Asian. That's Tree, the kingpin of everything, the Don Corleone of the syndicate. And who does that leave? The guy you've heard talking, Aaron Ellering, or Enforcer One. (laughs) The Enforcer, laughing at his own nickname like he's in the cast credits of a Guy Ritchie movie. This group of misfits might as well have been. 
As much as they pulled off some amazing feats of smuggling, they also pulled off some amazing feats of stupidity. In this episode, the story of getting too big, too fast. Driving around with you know, 200 pounds of pot in your fucking truck through the city in the middle of the night. Screwing up the little things so that they became enormous problems. And all the bullshit that was going on between people from up here and down there started to really get at people and we got sloppy. Of management trying to stay in control. And all the Asian kept reassuring us. And a lowly enforcer tasked with getting everyone in line. Could he save the syndicate from its own worst tendencies? He'd try. Shit got real sketchy. Real sketchy. But we didn't stop. We just went bigger. I'm Chris Walker, your guide in this series about high-flying pot smugglers, the rise and fall of a criminal enterprise, and the evolution of marijuana's black market in the era of legal weed. From Foxipus Inc. and Imperative Entertainment, this is The Syndicate. The enforcer and I met in a cafe in St. Paul, Minnesota. A large brunch crowd thronged the cheery breakfast spot, but we found a table up on a balcony where it was a little more quiet. Sitting across from me, the enforcer dwarfed the chair he sat in. Over six feet tall, he's a lanky black guy with a wide-set jaw and scraggly goatee. And he's quick to say the enforcer label is ridiculous. Wait, what? First of all, what bunch of fucking potheads? There was nothing to enforce down there. He may not like the name, but Tree clearly trusted him with some of the syndicate's more sensitive errands. And given his former line of work, Aaron Ellering is surprisingly candid in an interview. Unlike most people I talked to, he admitted right off the bat that he came into the syndicate knowing full well where the product was going. We were literally hiding in, in plain sight. Ellering already knew some of the syndicate's members in Minnesota and joined them in Colorado to learn the ins and outs of the pot trade. He didn't care that it was illegal. He wanted a change of scenery and found it in Colorado. On weekends, he'd take his dog on long hikes in the Rockies, reveling in the mountain's beauty. He enjoyed the work, which was easy enough at first, cultivate cannabis. But it didn't take long before Ellering noticed his warehouse manager, Shifty Nick, slipping. Nick started really fucking up, getting drunk, not showing up, making us do all the work, taking all the credit. And I see what was happening, and then money started coming up missing, like large amounts of money. Shit wasn't getting, was getting lost in the transition somewhere. His numbers were always off, and in my opinion, he was skimming the whole time. They were both skimming. Both, because Ellering thinks it wasn't just Shifty Nick, but also the distributor in Minnesota, Fat Cat Riley, who skimmed cash. One thing is certain, the Asian, as Ellering sometimes calls Tree, knew that he was being ripped off. Ellering wasn't privy to the conversations between Tree and Shifty Nick, but he knew when their relationship grew tense. Then one day, Ellering reported to the Colorado Boulevard warehouse and found the place completely empty. Yeah, he took, he took a whole, uh, the whole harvest you know, from his warehouse. A collection of plants allegedly worth $600,000. Tree immediately fingered a culprit. Shifty Nick declined my request for an interview, but here's him responding to detectives during his interrogation. Um, I had nothing to do with any of it. Tree wasn't buying it. Shifty Nick had to be behind the robbery. I got a call 
from the Asian. He said, get Nick's keys. Can you take over? And that was it. Just like that, Nick was out. But was he gone? Even after Nick was out, uh, people still worried about him because we'd catch him around the warehouses kind of spying or like plotting or whatever. Despite being iced out of the organization, it seems Shifty Nick wasn't ready to let go of the syndicate. One day, Ellering spotted him parked across the street from one of the warehouses, watching from behind the wheel, tracking the syndicate's movements. Gosh, you know, now, now we gotta worry about that shit. I was never worried. I was just worried about where I was gonna have to bury the son of a bitch if I did get like, that's why I had my dog. She'd tell me, you know, let me know if anybody was wandering around doing anything and, and take care of it after that. Gotta say, that kinda sounds like an enforcer. Point is, everyone felt on edge. Even Tree's typically cool demeanor started to show cracks. His paranoia not only centered upon Shifty Nick's shifty activities, skimming the syndicate's hard-earned profits, Tree also took a hard look at distribution, realizing how carelessly his warehouse managers move pot around town. But just the whole situation, Tree was pissed, not just at me, but the whole situation of, you know, but this is not that hard. You load up the fucking weed and get out of here. Ellering recalls one of Tree's rants. What the fuck makes these people think they can drive to my warehouse at, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning, drunk back and forth, and fuck this shit up? It's real fucking, you know, he was pissed, not directly at me. The sheer sloppiness of the operation struck Ellering, too. The crew's cash and pot handoffs lacked any semblance of security. In drug mules, they conducted exchanges so cavalierly they looked like amateurs, sometimes right out in the open. Like, in plain sight. Like, Pull the truck up and I'm walking out of the warehouse with garbage bags and we're like, this is fucking insane. To Ellering, it was clear the syndicate needed to clean up its act. He approached Tree with a proposition. From here on out, he'd coordinate the syndicate's cash and weed transfers in Colorado. All Tree would have to do is give him a large pay bump. His boss's response? I was given the discretion to do it however I wanted to do it and I had an agreement with Tree, like, you don't ask me, I just do it. The role came with a lot of trust. Now, Ellering would control the flow of money, a bagman's bagman, personally overseeing millions in cash and millions more in product. Ellering wasted no time. He set about completely revamping the syndicate's transfers in Denver, setting new rules to tighten security and cloak its activities. This started with... We had all kinds of stash spots. Tear off the door panel and stack cash in there. People were, uh, spare tire well. No more moving product out in the open. From here on out, the syndicate would hide cash and weed inside of wheel wells, in secret compartments behind cars' interior paneling, and they'd leave the loaded vehicles in predetermined parking lots. A lot of times I would just drive, leave the car there with the keys, get another vehicle that somebody left with money. Money and weed never traveled together. It was separate cars for pot and cash, different parking lots each time they exchanged cars. And the cardinal rule? Absolutely no contact between drug mules doing the exchanges. It was like that old French resistance strategy. Limit in-person meetings so that the enemy, in this case, law enforcement and rival criminals, couldn't catch your trail. Compartmentalize and conquer. Ellering effectively camouflaged the syndicate's distribution network within Denver. But there was one thing he couldn't hide, 
the huge warehouses. For anyone spying on the syndicate, they were easy to find, especially since Tree passed them off as legitimate grows. Going into 2013, robberies became a major problem. Here's Shifty Nick again in his interrogation. There was probably four or five robberies that had happened in the two months prior to this. So they, all of his places were getting broken into and robbed. Four or five robberies. This included the one you heard about last episode. They ended up stealing one of the 55-gallon soy sauce drums. They ended up filling that thing full of weed, dragging it down the stairs and throwing the whole thing in the back of their Jeep. Whether or not Shifty Nick had anything to do with them, since Tree certainly suspected him of the Colorado Boulevard theft, five robberies was a lot, even for the cannabis industry. You see, thefts are actually pretty common in the marijuana trade, including in the regulated market. Since pot is illegal at the federal level, cannabis businesses don't have access to national banks. This makes it difficult for pot companies to deposit large amounts of money, take out loans, and for customers to use credit cards at dispensaries. So cannabis businesses, and we're talking about even the legal ones here, deal in huge volumes of paper money. In some states where pot is legal, credit unions and state banks will accept deposits, but moving money around is still a headache. Some dispensaries hire private armored vehicles to transfer money to safes or community banks. Here's Kayvon Kalabari, who we heard from briefly in episode one, explaining that process. He opened one of the first medical marijuana dispensaries in Denver. We had Garda come in an armored car that, you know, deals with cash in traditional industries to come in every day and pick up our cash from us, to come into our dispensary, count it in the back, make sure it's right, put it in their truck and deposit it in the bank. Even with the security of an armored truck, Kalabari varied the pickup times to keep them unpredictable. He didn't want to give any outside observers a regular timetable to stage a stickup. Anecdotally, the dispensary owner knew that police agencies, many of which are not thrilled about legal pot, don't always prioritize solving dispensary thefts. In other words, even the legal guys couldn't put that much faith in the cops. And on the black market, Tree didn't have the opportunity to go to the police anyway. As robberies at his facilities stacked up, he invested thousands of dollars in high-quality surveillance systems. Extra steel gates in front of doors, multiple deadbolts, cameras surrounding all of his warehouses. They offered some degree of comfort. But if the thefts were inside jobs, a mole might thwart any security system. So Tree's ultimate backup? Human protection. He had Ellering and his dog move into a trailer next to a couple warehouses. On-site security. Tree hoped things were finally tightened up. He'd fired Shifty Nick, he'd delegated Ellering with coordinating handoffs in Denver, he'd boosted security, and the syndicate still had enough drivers to move product up north. From here on out, it'd be smooth sailing, right? Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
A citadel stands serenely along a rocky shore. Peasants work farms, and the surrounding forest looks peaceful. Until a horde of invaders streams out from the woods. The enemy's foot soldiers race towards the fortress, shooting fireballs as they run. A wizard sends sparks flying from his staff, slamming them against a castle turret. A message pops up on the screen, interrupting the video game battle. It's the guild's chat room, with an important message for guild members. The syndicate is ready to send its next pot shipment. As usual, the message comes across in a cipher. Codes like B643 or whatever code they come up with. The syndicate always used coded numbers to tell its couriers how much weed or cash to pick up from stash bots. If anyone outside the organization ever intercepted the messages, they'd have no clue what the numbers meant. But the chat room was the true innovation, part of an unusual communication strategy the syndicate used to avoid surveillance by law enforcement. Which was kind of ingenious. Clash of clans. The, the game? Mm-hmm, the game. Yeah, because you have it on your iPad, and then you're sitting there playing or whatever, and then you, you join a little guild, and you can message everybody in your guild. Clash of Clans, a mobile game, circumvented all the usual communication channels cops could wiretap. Um, anything that's regular cell phones, emails, um, none of that. That's a huge no-go in Tree's organization. In using the video game's chat room, the syndicate passed along this particular message in June 2013 to two of its go-to smugglers. The syndicate directed them to drive to Minnesota to exchange weed for money. Here's one of them, who you've been hearing during his interrogation, describing that trip. That particular occasion, no one gave me the money. I actually showed up in Minneapolis and I was told to go to a parking lot, find a certain car, open the trunk because it was already unlocked, and take the bag out of there. The bag contained $150,000 in cash that Tree wanted returned to Denver. Precious cargo. The two smugglers hid it in their car, then headed back to Colorado on June 17, 2013. They were about midway through their trip when they hit Nebraska. So I was driving back um, right outside, probably a little bit west of Omaha, and then a big silver SUV comes flying up behind me and then just waits right behind me. Um, I was going to speed limit, naturally, right? And I get pulled over. Shit. Highway Patrol. But why did they get pulled over? The smugglers tried to keep their cool, keep their voices calm and steady, as a stern-faced patrolman gave his explanation. He said that uh, he pulled me over for obstruction of a license plate, because I had one of those clear covers mm -hmm. over the back license plate. And, uh, and then started asking me questions. Do you have any drugs in the vehicle? Do you have any weapons in the vehicle? Are you driving through here with any relation to any organization that transports drugs? Obviously, I said no to all of them. Sweat gathered on their necks. The questions kept coming. Do you have any large amounts of money, over $10,000? Because that's also something that you need to report. And I said, no, I do not. And then he asked if he could search my vehicle. I said, no, I'm not comfortable with that. The cop's eyes narrowed. He told the two men he'd have to temporarily restrain them with handcuffs while he conducted a different kind of search. I have a canine unit. I'm going to walk him around the outside of your vehicle. From the side of the road, the syndicate smugglers watched helplessly as a dog circled their car, 
pushing its nose against the wheel well, against the back door, against the door frame. The dog paused, then sat down on the asphalt. The smugglers let out a sigh of relief. Great, it didn't find anything. Did you see the dog give the signal? If the dog sits down, that's the signal it has smelled drugs. Busted. It was only a matter of minutes before the patrolman found the 150K. Perhaps if the smugglers hadn't been such knuckleheads, driving a car that still smelled like their previous cargo, weed, they wouldn't be in this predicament. They knew that this was bad, very bad. It was no secret that lawmen in Nebraska and Kansas held vendettas against marijuana operations. Patrolmen in both states aggressively pulled over vehicles on interstates to and from Colorado. Life in Cheyenne County is more about cows than cannabis. But now, this part of the Old West is on the front line of marijuana's new frontier. Pot is legal in nearby Colorado, but when it leaves the state, it often travels across remote highways in Kansas. When you cross that state line, Kansas law takes effect. It doesn't matter if you, it's legal in Colorado, it's not legal in Kansas. Not even medical pot is legal in Nebraska and Kansas, though both states are conduits for black market weed headed out of Colorado, especially weed bound for the East Coast. Black markets there have begun importing Colorado cannabis rather than haul it in from traditional sources like Northern California. Think about it. Why deal with the extra distance and weather challenges when you can get cannabis from Colorado, just a hopscotch across the Great Plains? The two smugglers already knew they were going to face some tough questions about the dog signal and that 150 grand. As they found out, at the police station, those questions came from... Andy Vincic, which was Homeland Security stationed in Nebraska. The Homeland Security officer took down the smugglers' names, Ryan Farrow and Antonio Orfe, then put them into separate rooms. The voice you've been hearing belongs to Ryan Farrow, Tree's brother-in-law married to one of Tree's sisters. Andy and them sat me down, asked me a lot of questions about the money. At first, Farrow tried to deceive the agent, suggesting the money was his all along. There's no record of what he said exactly, but after fumbling to explain why he carried 150K in a vacuum-sealed bag, Farrow walked back his story. He did admit the money might have been related to drug sales, but said that it didn't belong to him. He figured that, so long as he personally didn't admit to any crimes, perhaps the agent didn't have enough evidence to hold him in jail. Take note, listeners. Because Pharaoh asked the questions you always should if you're ever being questioned in a police station. Was he being detained? Could he leave? To his surprise, they, they let me go after that. Pharaoh beelined it for the exit. He noticed the other guy wasn't out yet, but Pharaoh wasn't about to stick around. He'd have to follow up with Homeland Security agents anyway. They'd not only taken down his home address, but had confiscated his phone, iPad, GPS navigator, and burner phone. Little did he know that his wife Josie had been frantically texting him. In his phone, she shows up by her nickname, Muffin. Starting at 12.30 a.m., Muffin had texted, Hey, where are you? 12.39 a.m. You need to call me. 12.42 a.m. What the fuck? I know you are not asleep. 1.17 a.m. You need to call me and let me know what's up. You guys have a lot at stake. Pharaoh finally contacted Muffin after buying a new burner phone at a Verizon store. 
She freaked out. 150K of the syndicate's money gone? How are they ever going to explain that to her brother, Tree? Pharaoh said they'd have to try somehow. And get rid of any marijuana in the house, he added. Agents might be coming soon. So at that time, she called T, let him know. He said bullshit. Um, I got back to Colorado. I tried to call T. I wouldn't get any uh, calls returned. And then I found out through, you know, word of mouth, other people in the network that I had tried calling to get a hold of T that everybody thinks I stole the money. Farrow explained again and again that cops took the money in a traffic stop. But Tree didn't believe him. It didn't make sense that the cops would let him off so easily. This was exactly the kind of half-baked plan two stone drug mules would cook up to swindle him out of some cash. With the syndicate hemorrhaging money from thefts, it was time to stamp down on people stealing from him. He figured that Pharaoh stole his money just like Shifty Nick stole his weed. But Pharaoh wasn't ready to give up. I had my wife fly to Minnesota to go visit her sister, Lana. An elder sister, Lana, would know what to do. Um, Lana is always like T's number one sister. So we knew that if we got it to Lana, it eventually reached T. Maybe she could convince Tree that Pharaoh and Muffin were innocent. Muffin even went as far as obtaining a police report showing that agents confiscated $150,000 from her husband on June 17th. Uh, I brought the, the police paperwork and said, here, if you guys don't believe me, there it is. She never anticipated what Tree would do next. That T had the letter burned? Yes. That's Muffin during an interrogation. As she told a prosecutor, for reasons even she wasn't clear about, Tree told his family members to burn the police report. He'd already made up his mind about what happened. So once that letter burning story happened, what interactions did you have with your family? I called my mom and said, I'm so sorry to be disrespectful, but from here on out, your, your um, children and I are done. And we haven't spoken since. Just like Shifty Nick, the syndicate cut off Muffin and her husband from all future business. But the couple also felt the cold shoulder from the rest of the Wynn family, showing the lengths to which Tree went to protect his business interests. They'd been excommunicated from their own family. But Tree wasn't done. He also cut off the other smuggler who failed to deliver his money. Because remember, Nebraskan authorities nabbed two couriers heading back to Colorado. In Tree's eyes, the other smuggler posed just as much of a liability. So what happened to him? Well, unlike Pharaoh, Homeland Security pressed Antonio Orfe about where he got the 150K. Orfe cracked under the pressure. He confessed to receiving the money from a contact in Minnesota, Fat Cat. Oh, Fat Cat. Homeland Security knew about Fat Cat Richard Riley, all right. He'd been busted for cocaine and meth trafficking in 2003. And with a rap sheet like that, the feds licked their chops at the idea of nabbing Fat Cat again. They entered Rich Riley's name into an interstate database and discovered that another law enforcement agency, a state task force based out of the Twin Cities, already had their eyes on the Minnesotan drug lord. The investigation was under state jurisdiction, so Homeland Security referred Orfe their direction. The Minnesotan agency wasted no time in using Orfe to their advantage. When I moved back to Minnesota, um, I was still working with the North Metro Task Force. The plan was just for me to start doing controlled buys from Rich 
in Minnesota. So I wore a listening device. They put it, they put the listening device on me. Orfe agreed to become an undercover informant in return for dropped or reduced drug trafficking charges. To avoid jail time, he'd throw Fat Cat under the bus. The plan was to arrest Rich and I, so it didn't look like I was an informant. Because I was telling the North Metro Task Force that these guys are really violent, they always carry guns, and I was scared. Orfe's handler with the North Metro Task Force promised he and other officers would be ready to intercept a drug buy as soon as Orfe got a call from Rich. It wasn't long in coming. Orfe set off for the meeting, but his handler... He'd always advised me not to go through with it because he couldn't arrange law enforcement to intercept. The cops were too slow. And then it happened a second time. Orfe's driving towards the drug buy, Agents are supposed to storm the transaction, but at the last minute, his handler says they can't be there in time. Call off the meeting. And at that point, I felt like Rich lost all confidence in me, and I feel like he kind of suspected me of being an informant. And so in March, I really lost all contact with everybody, including my sister. His sister, because... Rich dates my sister. My sister actually came over to my house and said, you know, threatening me. Um, What'd she say? She told my mom if, if anything happens, that people are going to come kill me. Uh, it's, it's a real scary, scary situation right now for me. Back in Colorado, Tree and the rest of the syndicate didn't know anything about the heat on Fat Cat Riley. But despite the extra eyes on a key distributor, the syndicate avoided scrutiny from law enforcement for a couple of reasons. Minnesotan law enforcement focused its investigation on Fat Cat only in their state, not Colorado. And Tree, out of sheer dumb luck, had recently severed his ties with Fat Cat. Remember those warehouse robberies? Tree wanted payback for the plants he suspected Shifty Nick and Fat Cat stole from the Colorado Boulevard facility. And so Tree called on his enforcer to do him a favor. Well, then Tree wanted me to call Rich and say, you know, where's the money? I want my money. You need to pay me. It didn't go well. I called Rich and said, this is what Tree says. And then Rich tells me, fuck that little Asian motherfucker. I ain't giving him shit. Okay, I'll pass the message along and pass that message along to Tree. And Tree says, fuck him. He's cut off. With that, Fat Cat Rich lost his Colorado connection. Tree had no clue how narrowly his organization avoided detection from the feds, as well as Minnesotan law enforcement. He had other pressing concerns. With Fat Cat Riley and the two pothead smugglers out of the picture, the syndicate needed to recruit new drug mules and divert its pot to other distributors. Tree stressed over all the weed stacking up in his storerooms. He wasn't sure how he was going to offload it. Until he found inspiration, from the unlikeliest set of circumstances. The catalyst behind Tree's next big move goes back roughly half a year to August 2012, when Tree got an invite to a friend's funeral in Minnesota. The friend had been involved in the pot trade, and his Catholic burial provided Tree with an opportunity. As a priest offered a prayer, Tree looked past the coffin to see Crazy Tom Dispinet, the Minneapolis dealer he'd already been sending small amounts of weed to, 
as well as another old buddy who Tree hadn't seen in years, Pat Kincannon. They were a welcome sight, especially Pat. Everyone liked Pat. He was a salt-of-the-earth type who smiled through a bushy mountain beard and almost always wore plaid. Tree figured he'd see Pat and Tom at the funeral, since they'd both been close to the man being honored, Peter Lander. Pat Kincannon told me about him. He was brilliant in a lot of different ways. He, um, he could fix anything. Peter Lander was a jack of all trades, a brickmaker, champion pole vaulter, motorcycle stuntman, an enthusiastic father of four. He also was an exceptional grower. He mainly grew and sold wildflowers, but he also grew pot in the Colorado mountains. For months, he, Pat, and Tom had a side hustle moving weed from Steamboat Springs to Minneapolis. The trio considered the runs an easy side business among friends. But in August 2012, Lander, who was also a novice pilot, heard that his family dog was dying. He wanted to see the dog before a vet put it down and decided to fly an old single-prop plane from Glenwood Springs, Colorado to Minnesota for one last visit. He was going back to see his family and um, just an air and flying, I mean, we, no one knows the exact story, but pretty much we think that, you know, kind of just uh, lost oxygen and came down. It's sad, it's still sad to think about. A sheep herder found the plane's wreckage just north of Milner, Colorado. Peter Lander was 36 years old. At the funeral, Pat, Tom, and Tree all mourned their friend's premature passing. They began talking after the service. And that's when Tree seized his opportunity. He shifted the talk to business. You know, he mentioned that he was in Denver and that things were looking good for him. He had, was acquiring, you know, a building and they were getting ready to, to do some bigger type growing operations. Similar to how he approached Alicia Rainey at a wedding, Tree put out an offer that Tom sell more of his product, becoming his main distributor in Minneapolis, and that Pat come work for the syndicate in Denver. Pat sensed a good opportunity and echoed others' impressions of Tree. You know, T is ambitious, he's an entrepreneur, he's a very intelligent person. Granted, Tree didn't mention any of the drama and infighting within the syndicate. He appealed to Pat and Tom's farmer sensibilities, talking up his plans to expand production of the highest quality cannabis. Like any Wall Street corporation, he focused on growth, and the syndicate was nothing if not bullish. Tree said he was prepared to invest nearly $750,000 in a new state-of-the-art warehouse, his biggest, most impressive grow yet. Pat and Tom didn't want to miss that. They decided to come on board, helping Tree take the syndicate to even greater heights. Over the coming months, they became Tree's lieutenants, helping streamline his growing, distribution, and recruit other managers, including Kyler Gerbich. You probably remember him from the top of the episode as Garbage Breath, the guy who smelled like he had an infection in his mouth. He had his own warehouse, which meant that the syndicate now had even more product to offload. But distribution problems lingered. Tree's new lieutenants, Pat and Tom, quickly realized they needed to find a better way to transport product to Minnesota. How could they tighten up smuggling more to match the syndicate's finely tuned growing operations? Garbage Breath had an idea. Joe, I met through my friend Alex. A guy named Joe Johnson. He was a pilot. The idea hit a sour note at first, the sting of Peter Lander's death still strong. 
but Lander had been a daredevil, and Garbage Breath claimed this other guy was reliable. The proof? Joe Johnson was one of the most well-known skydivers in the Midwest. He owned a successful jump zone outside the Twin Cities called Westside Skydivers. The guy was a pro. So the syndicate scheduled a meeting. Uh, well, I mean, I introduced Joe to Tree. Tree. Of course. And what was the purpose of that introduction? Uh, so Tree could have an outlet to get rid of product. That outlet could be municipal airports, Joe said, and the sky was the limit for how much pot he could move. Tree was impressed with Joe's enthusiasm, but more importantly, this would be the way he finally curbed thefts from his employees. No more disappearing shipments of pot and money as they moved from warehouses to cars to highways. Joe Johnson would simplify the whole smuggling process. After talking it over with Pat and Tom, Tree decided to bring Joe into the organization. This would be the syndicate's master stroke, an airborne drug mule. From here on out, they'd fly their product to Minnesota. On the next episode of The Syndicate, Flying High. I would get into town, they'd put me up in the fucking nicest hotel in downtown Denver. Women, fucking food, drinks, you know, um, it's ridiculous. But what was Tree's end game? And what would it take to go legal? To answer that question, you have to acknowledge the roller coaster ride of cannabis legalization in America. We'll hear from a drug historian to put the syndicate in context. When Ronald Reagan gets elected president in November of 1980, they are perfectly positioned to deeply influence his administration's execution of its uh, burgeoning war on drugs. As well as a former pot smuggler who explains how outlaws were celebrated back in the day. I mean, I never would have been a criminal if, it, if pot hadn't been illegal. I wasn't gonna rob banks or, or armored cars or anything like that. Although I can see where guys get off on the adrenaline rush. They'll help us understand how widely pot status has changed over time and what it would mean for the syndicate to become a forward-facing business. That's coming up on Episode 5 of The Syndicate. The Syndicate is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Foxtopus Inc. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Produced and edited by Laura Krantz and Scott Carney. The Syndicate is scored and mixed by Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Chris Walker. This podcast was made possible, in part, by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Visit thesyndicatepodcast.com for more about this story. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Syndicate. If you're enjoying it, please leave us a review, wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps more people find out about our show. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.